0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. And so now I'd like to uh, to start the Dhamma talk, and I'll keep you guessing as to what the subject is, but I think the people who came yesterday for the meditation retreat, they'll know what the subject is, yes. So, of course, I just wanted to emphasize that the Dhamma is actually about our lives. It's about reality. And really, uh, the descriptions of the Dhamma that we have in the books, the teachings we have from the Buddha, they are the descriptions of reality. But they're not our reality. We have to... Uh, as it were, take those teachings and see, uh, investigate them and see them in our own lives. That's where the Dhamma is really to be found. uh, All the teachings, the voluminous teaching, volumes and volumes of teaching that we have from the Buddha, very, very precious. But they're signposts, aren't they? And they're pointing to... Uh, a direct experience that the Buddha is encouraging each of us to find within ourselves. Because, as I often say, the Dhamma, as we have recorded from the Buddha, that's his truth, his wisdom. It is not ours until we make it ours. And so it's very important that we realize that. And I know Ajahn Shah said the same thing. He said, you know, the, the words that we read in books, whatever the books may be they're so different from the actual experience and for instance you know you can read the word love you can read the word kindness is that the feeling is that the emotion no when we see that it's just a signpost it's just a label but the experience for us is something quite quite different We're quite deep. It's not different, but it's uh, deep and it's it's felt by ourselves individually. And as you heard when we chanted the Dhamma, the Dhamma is to be realized by the wise. And we all have wisdom. We all have wisdom uh, uh, to be known individually by the wise. So this is something where we actually find, uh, we really understand the Buddha's teaching. And as I mentioned, this Dhamma discussion is very good for actually taking it deeper for us because it's got to be relevant to us, doesn't it? It has to speak to us. If it doesn't, Well, it's very nice and uh, it may give us a sense of security, familiarity, particularly for traditional Buddhists, isn't it? But it won't go deep and it won't change our lives. It won't change the way we see the world. And that's the important thing for us. And so the teaching that I'm going to focus on today is going to be the Four Noble Truths. I I think I'm going to be very lucky to get past the First Noble Truth, but we'll see. Because the Four Noble Truths are the heart of the Buddha's teaching. They really contain the whole of the Buddha's teaching. And there's um, many, uh, there's a few different books, but one book, Word of the Buddha, you've probably heard of it, by Venerable Nyanatiloka, he did it originally. He's used the Four Noble Truths, and then he's fitted in all the teachings that relate to each of those Noble Truths into the... Uh, uh, into that book. It's done it in a very abbreviated form. Otherwise it'd be a huge book. <laughs> very abbreviated. But it gives you the, the whole understanding that all the Buddha's teaching encompassed in this one initial teaching that he gave to the world. It's amazing how incredible that, a, that a t- you, know, you give your first teaching and it really is the, uh, uh, contains all the, all the teachings that you'll give through the whole of your life. And it's very interesting that the Buddha, one time, he was saying, I think he was in the Sinksapar Forest in Kosambi, somewhere like that, and he picked up some leaves and uh, from the forest floor, from these um, uh, these trees, and he said, you know, uh, to the monks, you know, what's more new, what's uh, bigger, the number of leaves in my hand or the leaves in the trees above us? And they said, Bhante, Bhante, there's lots more leaves up there than in your hands. And the Buddha said, and this is the amazing thing, he said, these leaves are, are what I teach you. The leaves in the trees are what I know. And why do I teach you just this handful of leaves? Because this is useful. This will lead to liberation from, this will lead to the end of suffering. The leaves in the forest that he knew, or the other the other things he knew from his direct experience, not useful for liberation. so he didn't he didn't go into those too often we're very interested in the leaves in the forest above <laughs> that's that's uh, but these leaves the four noble truths particularly are the ones that will be useful for us and it's why he he often he often said you know in the time of the buddha there were lots of speculative ideas about is the world infinite is it eternal or or not eternal and all these sort of things and for the buddha it's by the by it doesn't matter Because for each and every one of us, the world that we experience is this body and mind. It's not not a world out there. It's not the world of science, you could say, because science is uh, usually interested in an objective reality, something separate from the individual. But honestly, can we know anything of the world except from what we experience ourselves through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking? That is the world that we know. So this is very important that the focus of the dhamma is on our individual experience, our uh, our individual experience of life, of reality. And of course, where we have problems with life, it it usually means, doesn't it, we are out of tune, out of sync with reality. It's not the way we want it to be. It's not, uh, not as we would wish it to be. And, of course, these Four Noble Truths are really spelling out the nature of reality. And often, <laughs> often people are searching for the meaning of life, aren't they? We all are, really. And these Four Noble Truths are really the meaning of life. So... And uh, I'd just like to emphasise too, sometimes when uh, people are giving introductions to Buddhism, they often say, well, these are the basic teachings, you know, the Four Noble They're not basic. <laughs> They're not basic at all. Uh, the title for this talk is, If You Want to Become Enlightened, This is the Way, the Four Noble Truths. This is the way. The bigger question, of course, for each of us, and it's a good question to ask, do we want to become enlightened? It's a challenging question. I think for most people, I know in Sri Lanka, for instance, we, we have the death notices. You know, little, They print these little notices when someone dies and it's put on trees and on lampposts around the village or the area that person's lived in. And it always says at the bottom, niwansua Weva," which means may you attain or may you gain, uh, receive uh, nibbāna. And I know, and I'm sure most of the people who know that person who passed away think, no, they don't really want <laughs> to experience nirvana, not now. Often they have the idea, well, not now, but you know, sometime in the future, <laughs> but definitely not now. So uh, this is uh, pointing, pointing us to uh, this, this, this uh, pointing us to the nature of our experience, and particularly our attachments. Actually, that's what keeps us going. In the, in the samsara. It keeps us getting reborn because we want to be here. We want to be here for all those people that are, we're attached to, the people that are important in our lives, possessions that are important in our lives, the situations that are important in our lives. So like a magnet will be drawn back to a new life by the villain of the piece, craving, desire, attachment. We want to come back. We want to be with those uh, people, those situations, those possessions that are so dear to us. And it's no mystery, you know, the mechanism of rebirth in that sense. It makes absolute sense in uh, psychological sense. So these Four Noble Truths are not basic, they're really the foundation. They contain the whole teachings of the Buddha. And the one-time Venerable Sariputta, in fact, said, just as the elephant's footprint, all the other footprints of every other animal can be fitted into it, so these Four Noble Truths, every other teaching of the Buddha, can be fitted into the Four Noble Truths. And uh, so the Four Noble Truths are, are really such a treasure for us. And they're so useful even in our everyday life because they can provide us with a scheme for investigating our experience. And this is so useful. I mean, obviously the Buddha was using a, a current scheme, in a sense, a medical scheme that you, for instance, you diagnose the problem, you see all the symptoms, then you find the cause of that, uh, that disease, that sickness, and then you give the remedy for that sickness and uh, disease. and you also give the path that leads to being able to get the remedy to how you should use it and practice and uh, then to effect the uh, treatment. So these Four Noble Truths are very useful in life, when we're experiencing a problem, just to realise, oh, we don't have to say, this is suffering, but this is, it's useful in a way, when we say, this is suffering. It's interesting, the Buddha always says, this is suffering, he doesn't say, my suffering or I suffered, this is suffering. And when we say that, you know, just to recognize it, isn't it? This is suffering. It's very useful because, firstly, we're not identifying with it. Yeah, we're saying this experience that I'm having is suffering. And, and suffering, even though, you know, um, some people think, oh, these Buddhists, oh, my goodness, they're, they're so, you know, obsessed with suffering, you know. Thank goodness I'm not a Buddhist, they may be. Because only Buddhists suffer, that's not true. (laughs) But Buddhists make uh, sense, make uh, understand that suffering. But this suffering we experience in life, unsatisfactoriness is a very good term for it. This dukkha is a great motivator. It really gets us up and, and motivates us. When we have suffering in our life, when there's unpleasant feeling, we say dukkha vedana in our lives, we'll do something. I mean, if you, for instance, if you have an itch, you know, for instance, you, we get itches, these always seem to happen during meditation, don't they? <laughs> the idea in meditation is not to scratch the itch, but you just try not scratching an itch. You just, if you try, if we try not to address some feeling of uh, unpleasant feeling in the body or even in the mind, it's very hard not to automatically react to do something. And of course, uh, for instance, with a, some itches, the more you <laughs> scratch, the itchier it gets. <laughs> and there's a bit of a story later if we get to it about that. So, this is the important thing that it motivates us. We can't just ignore it. Um, ideally, you know, for a meditator, just to see it is very useful. Uh, to see it clearly, not with a lot of aversion, to try and understand our situation, and having seen that there is this suffering, there is this unsatisfactoriness, then of course naturally we'll ask, well, what's causing it? What's what are the causes and conditions that are, are um, bringing out this experience for me? Uh, this is this is very very useful, and of course we'll look into that. Uh, that cause the cause, because once we find the cause, then of course we will have an understanding of where the remedy lies, what we what we need to do to remedy that sickness, and of course then we will also have an idea of the path how we should proceed with this treatment for the sickness. And of course, all of us often the Buddha is compared to a doctor, isn't he, a physician, and of course he's not healing the body is not concerned so much with the body as with the mind. And of course, this is where uh, most of our suffering lies. Not all our suffering is in the mind, but it's probably, I don't know, we'd say 10% physical, 90% mind, something. But certainly what we make of, say, even physical pain can make it really unbearable. And, you know, I often have a lot of compassion, a lot of feeling for those people who have chronic pain. You know, chronic pain, it just doesn't go away. So you have to live with that. You have to come to terms with that. And that is not, not easy at all. Because um, Ayakima, she used to say that our best, our very best teacher Who's our very best teacher? Uh, suffering. suffering dukkha. Yes, exactly. She used to say that. It's the best teacher, but it's the hardest teacher. She used, she used to say, you know, you go on a retreat and you know, having a difficult time. There's aches and pains in the body and and whatever, and you you think, oh. And you go to the uh, the teacher of that retreat and you say. Oh, look, I just can't manage. I've got to go home. I've got terrible headaches. I've got this, you know. Um, so, and and usually the teacher will say to you, "Yeah, that's okay. No problem. You can go home." You know, if, you know. Sometimes they use delaying tactics. Well, you know, why not wait until after lunch? <laughs> you know, because things do change. Our minds change, and we ha- might have a meditation, and it changes everything. But just having that. Uh, open door, as it were, can actually relax the mind. and may change the situation. But, Aikima said, you say that to Dukkha. Lord, I want to go home. I just, I've just got this terrible headache and I've got problems at the back. It's killing me. And, and she says, and Dukkha won't listen. The Dukkha won't say, go home. Dukkha may say, go home. But I'm coming too. <laughs> and that's, And that's the... That's one of, the, uh, one of the things we see with this uh, suffering, this unsatisfactoriness in life. You know, so often people say, oh, wow, well, I, I don't have much suffering in my life, thank you very much. I, as I say, these Buddhists, yeah, they have a lot of it. <laughs> The reason we don't often see suffering, the unsatisfactoriness of life, is we move away from it as quickly as possible. We distract ourselves. You know, um, often we have this, ter- this term, isn't it, when we go on holiday, say, well, we're getting away from it all. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to do. What are we getting away from it all? The, the dukkha. And of course, Ayakima uh, also said, yeah, you can travel, you can, you know, uh, and uh, get away from it all. But dukkha will come with you in the suitcase, too, in some form or other. I do think, though, you know, having a break, changing the uh, situation we're in is very helpful, nevertheless. And it may actually improve our ability to deal with difficult situations back at home where we live. So a change can be very useful. So these Four Noble Truths, seeing the the situation we have, the difficulties we have, this is uh, suffering, this is unsatisfactory, looking for the cause of that situation and then finding the remedy. It's very interesting with these Four Noble Truths, um, uh, the question arises, I would say, uh, that... If you see one noble truth, will you see all the others? If you see dukkha, do you get all the others, as it were, as a free gift? And one of the monks, Venerable, uh, what's his name, Gavampati, he said he heard from the Buddha, anyone that sees dukkha fully understands dukkha, they see the second noble truth, craving, the third noble truth, the cessation of craving, cessation of suffering, and they see the path to the cessation, to the ending of all dukkha. So it's very good. If we really see any of these noble truths really to the core, then we will see all the other noble truths. So this is my out for if we don't get very far. (laughs) But we'll see. So... And uh, I think uh, um, a very good experiment, really, and I think to make it a bit more experiential, I think it's worth doing, actually, because sometimes we don't see dukkha, as I mentioned, because we move away from it. But if we sit in meditation, for instance... If we sit in meditation you'll be, we become much more aware of the restlessness in the body the pains and aches and uh, uncomfortableness we'll be much much more aware of the restlessness in the mind so it is meditation actually teaches us uh, quite a bit about the nature of dukkha and i was going to suggest here this different, we can do it, actually, just for a moment, just to close our eyes and just experience, just sitting here in this moment. now we can come out of that and i think it just makes us it grounds us when we um, go within and we see what's really going on in this body and this mind you know we we can feel maybe the tummy's a bit full or the the uh, there's some uh, ache in the body or this unrestlessness in the mind, or the mind hasn't arrived here yet. <laughs> it's still coming to the, the Buddha center because because when we're hurrying or whatever, we often, that, that, that momentum of the mind, the hurrying of the mind continues. And so we can see when we meditate, we can see this. And this is why Ajahn Brahm, he often says, he says, it's quite interesting, he says, mindfulness can be difficult for people, sometimes, often actually, because as soon as you come to the present moment, you notice, oh, the body's got this ache or that ache. It's, it's a bit unpleasant. And maybe the mind is unpleasant too because, for instance, when we meditate, we're actually just stopping, aren't we? We're stopping here in the present moment and that is going against the the momentum of the mind, as I mentioned before. The mind's really moving along and then you want to sit in the present moment, you know, you think, wow. So it can feel unpleasant to begin with and this is where it's pointing to the nature of dukkha. We bear with it, we bear with it and we 're kind, we use kindness with it uh, we don 't uh, um, we don 't hurt the body don 't hurt the force of the body, or force the mind just to be kind, bring up a positive emotion to be here in the present moment and to realize what a treasure it is to be here in the present moment and i don 't know if any of you got that feeling of you know the unsatisfactoriness of the experience of the body or the mind. But there was a wonderful experiment. Ajahn Brahmali told us about this. I couldn't believe it when I first heard it. I thought, is this possible? (laughs) That in America, everything's possible in America. (laughs) I can't remember the university, is it South Carolina? One of the universities, they had this experiment where they invited students to come and they wanted them to uh, sit in a room and just sit there there was nothing in the room for them. They weren't to have devices, you know, telephones or um, iPads, or these sorts of things with them, just to sit there and uh, to, you know, to contemplate their thoughts, just to be there, just to be, nothing. They didn't have to do anything, only 10 or 15 minutes. But there was a, a buzzer on the, on the wall. And the, the buzzer, if you pressed it, it gave you an electric shock, Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> and they asked all the participants, all the students that participated, would you pay not to be shocked? Because they all tried it and said, whoa, that's really unpleasant. And they all said, oh, yeah, for sure. Wouldn't, wouldn't like that. And then they they had the experiment and they went in there, students went in there, Individual. righto, just talking about an experiment where... Yes, the experiment where the, um, they had a group of students and they, the aim of this experiment was that they should sit in a room and, uh, they weren't to have any device, weren't to read or weren't to, shouldn't go to sleep. (laughs) And, but if they wanted to, they could press the buzzer and get an electric shock. And uh, and they didn't have to sit there for very long, ten or fifteen minutes. You only had to sit, had a minute or so, but they only had they had ten or fifteen minutes, and uh, they found very remarkably at the end of the experiment that of the men, seventy five percent pressed the buzzer, of the women, twenty five percent, which which I think shows shows something. <laughs> So it shows that the, the, probably the women were more sensible about it, but the uh, the men, you know, maybe more restless, more active, or energetic, or whatever. And now, you know, this is the, the the big thing for all of us these days. One of the biggest sufferings for people is boredom. Don't do anything not to be bored, <laughs> which is not not always a good thing. So. This is, uh, it shows you the human situation that this dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness is a part of our lives. And I think this is so, you'd think, well, this is, everybody knows that, don't they? That you can't get things the way you want them all the time. Life will be as it is and it's not going to be the way you want it. Everyone knows that. But how many people really take it on board? How many people really... um, uh, when when life throws them something like uh, they find out they've got a cancer um, or one uh, somebody that's very close to them passes away how many of us do reflect yeah this is this is part of life this is part of the unsatisfactoriness this is part of impermanence the fact that nothing lasts nothing can last and so If we really understand this dukkha, it really gives us an understanding of life. It means that when dukkha comes to us, yeah, we'll still suffer. (laughs) But we'll suffer a little bit more lightly. We'll suffer with understanding that, yeah, this is what comes with being born. It really is part of birth. You know, that fact that we will be separated from those people, And those things that were really dear to us, that's going to happen either during our lives or, you know, when we pass away or they pass away. So for most of us, we got into uh, existence. We came to birth without reading the contract. (laughs) We didn't check the fine print. It's not that fine, actually, (laughs) The print, I think, the the shortcomings, the unsatisfactoriness of life are very, very obvious. But uh, our desire, and this is the second, um, really getting on to the the, uh, second noble truth, our desire to continue to exist, our craving to exist is very, very strong. That we want to come back. We want to continue to live. We want to exist. And so that drives us on. Of course, as I mentioned, some people, they get so fed up, so overwhelmed by physical pain, by mental pain, that they want to end it all. They want out. And this, of course, is suicide or euthanasia. And it's very understandable. But if you have, a, if you have the perspective of an enlightened being, of a Buddha, you know, it's only out for a very short time. And I think of these people who commit suicide, I think, well, wow, it's going to finish as soon as this body dies. It's going to finish. And then the next moment after the body's dead, still knowing, there's still awareness. What's this? What's this? It must be so confronting. And it, I don't know whether that they would find it totally crushingly distressing or whether they would, um, re, would feel... Uh, happiness at that. I think often, I often have this idea, I don't know if it's the reality, that having committed suicide and uh, the body having died and then the awareness being there, I think there must be so much remorse, regret, that, oh God, really? What, What did I do that for? You know, I'm still here. You know, the mind is still here. This is what we'll say is us. So it's a this is um what the buddha called vibhava the craving to annihilate to get rid of and that can be one of the one of the responses isn't it to overwhelming uh physical or mental suffering uh in our experience and these are, and of course the buddha is pointing to the fact that this is not helpful and so now so this noble truth of uh, suffering is very, very useful. And the Buddha, of course, he's talking, as I, I'll mention here now, he says, now this is the noble truth of suffering. This is Ajahn Sajjato's translation, that's quite good. Rebirth is suffering, usually it says birth. But of course, our birth in this life, how many of you remember that? Anyone? I don't. Was it suffering? probably was <laughs> but certainly being born again and again and again definitely suffering future suffering and um, for millions of times you know this is this is the scenario that the Buddha um, explain is really pointing to because having experienced millions and millions of his past lives he realized, wow, I've done it all. Been, you know, reborn millions of times. I've got sick millions of times. I've got old millions of times. And I've died millions of times. And I never found the perfect happiness to hang out in forever after. That's what people want, isn't it? Forever after. The, the solution to it all, you know, nothing changes. It's perfect just as it is. Is it possible? (laughs) I don't don't think so. Even heaven, I think, well, heavenly existences would change. So he says, rebirth is suffering, old age is suffering, and illness is uh, suffering, and death is suffering. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Anybody here think that's not the case? I think most people would say these are all sufferings. And they become bigger suffering. Why do they become bigger sufferings? Because of our fear of them. You know, like with sickness, I know some people fear getting sick. And I've heard about somebody who's got a real phobia about it, being sick and getting old. Wow, a lot of people really suffer over that. Uh, Whether it's because they can't do what they used to be able to do, the body used to be able to do, or more likely... They don't look like they want to look. <laughs> that's, that's, that's usually the big problem. And you often see people attempting to look young when they get very old. And it, I personally, I don't think it works. <laughs> but they must look in the mirror and think, wow, it looks great. <laughs> that's what I, I think, I'm glad you're happy. <laughs> Everybody else made me think, oh no, <laughs> why do it? And uh, then of course, death is suffering. And it's, it's not, I mean, death physically can be suffering, and that's possible, it's, you know, it can be very painful. This is what causes, on the physical level, is it can be painful, not necessarily. But it's really the mind, what we're making of it. Dukkha is very much about what we make of experience. And what, of course, with death... It's the unknown. What's going to happen? A lot of fear. Not only that. What are we leaving behind? All those people, all those things uh, that are so dear to us, all that we've spent our lives building up, you know, amassing, acquiring, um, and can't take it with us. But what we do take us with us, of course. The qualities, good and bad qualities that we've developed, the karma, good and bad karma that we've um, developed over life, the wisdom that we've understood, we can take that with us. We take that with us, and so this is what we. This is really uh, pointing us in the direction that the Buddha is intending us to go, go to go to something that's really developing the mind, developing the qualities, the good qualities in our hearts and minds, because here and now we'll get the benefit. If we've got good qualities, if we've got wisdom, life is much, much, much more enjoyable, much, much more um, uh, pleasant for us if we've got those good qualities here and now. And then... When we move, when the mind moves on, when the body uh, dies and the mind splits from the body and moves on to a new life, then we've got all these good qualities we're taking with us. Like the proverbial suitcase when we, <laughs> we go traveling. And uh, I think some people, they leave this life with their suitcase, they get to the next life with the suitcase, and they go, oh my goodness, look at all these, you know, all these bad qualities that I brought with me, you know, all the anger, all the jealousy, all the resentments, all the, um, all, all this ego that I brought with me. But if if we develop the mind in good qualities, when we get to the next life and proverbially, and proverbially open the suitcase, metaphorically, that's easier, <laughs> we can see, well, all the good qualities we have, the kindness we have, the wisdom, the giving that we've developed, the peace we've developed in the mind, all these good qualities, they come with us. They're exportable. <laughs> but the other the other things, you know, the mansion, the, the car, the whatever, we can't take with us. We can't take with us. And so really, you know, these Four Noble Truths, and especially Dukkha, is pointing to, the mind. Develop our minds. Work on the mind. This is where the treasure lies. This is where happiness always resides. Everybody knows that, actually. And and often I say to people, you know, the, the world we experience here and now, where is it coming from? It's coming from our minds. Yeah, it's a beautiful day, but I see this as a beautiful day from my mindset. Somebody who's totally um, anxious, sees this beautiful day and thinks, oh, skin cancer. Oh no, I've got to cover myself in, you know, uh, skin, uh, in cancer, in sun cream. And, you know, so the experience we have of reality, it's all the same reality for us in a sense, but the take that we have on it is due to the way we see it, our minds, the good and the negative qualities, the positive and the negative qualities we've developed. So this is, this is shaping our minds here and now, our experience here and now. So this investment in the mind is short-term investment and a long-term investment too. Because when, when the body passes away, if we haven't realised the Four Noble Truths, if we haven't become enlightened, if we haven't become awakened, then when we come to the new life, it will be in a very good circumstances. The mind will be in a very good state, and the the uh, the life that we take will be a good, very good quality life, human or above, usually we would say. So this is this is the um, the importance of developing the mind, and this is what dukkha is pointing us to: this suffering, and that's why it's a noble truth. And of course, those physical aspects that I mentioned, you know, of uh, birth or rebirth, old age, sickness and death, that's the physical. But the Buddha really makes it clear, you know, when we have this definition of dukkha, you know, suffering, that is definitely suffering, isn't it? But a big part of that suffering is that this is very unsatisfactory. This is not what we want. Nobody wants to get sick. People don't want to get old, and they don't want the body to get old, and they don't want the body to die. This is part of the contract, but that's what we want. So immediately we're setting ourselves up for unsatisfactoriness. Immediately, and of course, the Buddha goes on to spell it out more clearly when he says: association with the disliked is suffering; separation from the liked is suffering; not getting what you wish is wish for is suffering. In brief, the five grasping aggregates, the personality factors, the factors of Body and mind uh, are suffering, so he's pointing to this unsatisfactory nature of things that we will have to have to be associated with situations with people uh, that we don't like. We will experience sickness from time to time. Uh, we will experience, if we live long enough, old age and. Death is not, a, uh, not, not something that we can avoid, actually, but we can come to it wisely, deal with it wisely, understand it wisely. So very important to see that sort of unsatisfactory nature, too, in, in this noble truth of dukkha, that it is, in essence, you know, really, dukkha is any experience of body and mind that has this dukkha and this unpleasant feeling with it, whether it be mildly unpleasant or extremely unpleasant. Whether it be, you know, uh, the unpleasantness of somebody saying something hurtful, or the unpleasantness of a headache, or whether it's the unpleasantness of somebody dying in your life. That's more. That's extreme unpleasantness, or going through, so chemotherapy, this is, this is my my image of about the worst type of uh, suffering you can imagine. I'm sure there are many uh, uh, extreme types of suffering. So Dukkha is a whole range of unpleasant feeling. The interesting thing is how would an enlightened person deal with this unpleasant feeling Dukkha Vedana? Would they try to Try to run away from it? Will they try to blame somebody or would they blame themselves? Or how would an enlightened being um, deal with that? Would they just not react? Do people think they'd not react? they sorry? Two, yes, yes, indeed. But there was a very, uh, I was thinking about this, and of course, you know, some people will say, well, you know, an enlightened being will just, you know, they won't they won't respond at all. An enlightened being will experience unpleasant feeling, and pleasant feeling, there is no doubt, because once we take birth, it's not an option to, <laughs> to not experience feeling. Once we have these six senses, you know, the, the, the five senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching in the mind, there is going to be contact with the external world. And and because of that, we're going to have feelings come up. And the f- nature of those feelings is always going to be either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, broadly speaking. And then, for most of us, then uh, the Lord Buddha talks about the next part of the process, craving arises. I want to get rid of this if it's unpleasant. I want more of it if it is really pleasant. And if we really like something, we find it very satisfying, I'm going to get this again and again. We attach to it, definitely, as something very important in our lives. So this is, this is seeing the process that's driving uh, the driving this dukkha. But as I say, it's this feeling. But for an enlightened being, and I, th- I reflected on it, and I thought, there's this wonderful uh, story of when the, uh, uh, the Buddha uh, met the yaka. This is like a, a spirit. Uh, usually quite nasty spirits actually, uh, uh, Suchi Loma. And he 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 went he went to probably who is was going to stay in this cave. And this cave belonged to um, uh, this uh, Suchi Loma. And uh, the Buddha was uh, sitting in this cave and then the Suchi Loma thought, I'll test out if he's really enlightened. And Suchi Loma had all these spikes. This was the form of... That being's body, lots of spikes, and he'd move closer and closer to the Buddha, and he said, "If he's not enlightened, he'll move away," and got cl- close to him, and and the Buddha, and then the Buddha moved away from that painful feeling of these spikes contacting the body, and so Suchi Loma said, "Wow, there we are! It's proof that you're not enlightened." But the Buddha, I think he mentioned then. This is the nature of all beings that we will move away from unpleasant feeling, if possible. But as a result of unpleasant feeling for a Buddha, for an enlightened being, negative states of mind won't come up. There won't be the anger, there won't be resentment, there won't be all this baggage of the, uh, and the negative emotions that we carry with us. It will just be an event. This is unpleasant. Move and the, it won't he won't be thinking this Suchi Loma is what an evil yakker he is, you know, may he be cursed, <laughs> all that stuff. No, so this is how an enlightened being would deal uh, with, I think, anyway, with dukkha. And if you want to read more about that, then I'd suggest you have a look at that story of Suchi Loma. It's a uh, I'm just trying to think. I think it's in the connected discourses of the Buddha. So, and I'd like to just finish finish off now. I didn't cover any, hardly any of the things that I had in mind, but uh, just to encourage people to look at this teaching of the Four Noble Truths for yourselves. Uh, this has been my. Focus for our three month rains retreat, we call it the Vasa, and it's just finishing next week <laughs> it's finishing, is the this teaching on the four noble truths. And it's been so insightful for me because for most of us, as if you're a Buddhist, you think, Oh yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, dukkha and then cause of dukkha, yeah, yeah, and the cessation of dukkha and the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. But how do we really know it? Do we really understand it? Have we got a, a, even a glimmer? That's what I feel, you know. When looking into it, I realized how much I didn't know, how much I learned from just looking at these four noble truths and how beneficial they are for all of us to come to terms with the nature of reality. That, you know, this na- the reality is always going to be flawed. It is always, without exception, going to have this element of unsatisfactoriness, suffering. It's going to have this element of impermanence. And it's also going to have this element, and this is the big out of non-self. That It's all been a process. It's all a process. We needn't take it personally. You can say that, But until it's the reality for yourself, till the understanding is crystal clear, we're going to own our dukkha. We're going to own our craving. We're going to own our suffering. When we see non-self, when we see this is only a process that's always been a process, but now I see it, we can let go of craving. We can let go of suffering because we don't own it it's very interesting. I'll just mention this. Uh, when the Buddha talks about the cessation of suffering, the words that are used are really interesting, actually. They, it really struck me when I looked at it this time, when I was teaching yesterday. And he says here, this uh, third noble truth, it's the fading away and cessation of this very same craving with nothing left over, nothing left over, giving it away, letting it go, releasing it, and not sticking to it, not adhering to it. It's obvious. And when I saw it, I thought, yeah, it's obvious. It's something we think we own. We're attached to. And so when we see non-self, it's gone. That attachment's gone. That craving is gone. And then... The mind is ready to see nibbana, see the four see the four noble truths and see nibana and finish with rebirth. Because it's let go of owning something we never really ever owned. <laughs> That's the trouble. We never owned it. But we thought we thought we did. And we're very attached to it. Some people are very attached to their suffering. They're identified with it. They are that suffering. So this is is what the Four Noble Truths are pointing to. So, as I mentioned before, that very challenging question. Do you want to become enlightened? (laughs) Or will you say, like many of us will say, not yet. maybe next life or whatever so i'd like to finish there and to open up for questions from uh, from here from the hall and then from online yes yes please thanks for the great talk do you mind using the yeah, mic for those online? yeah yeah
1: Good, good. Um, um, so the, I like the provocative question, do we want to become enlightened? It got me thinking and as I find mm. it always helpful to re-look at the Four Noble Truths and go over basic Buddhist stuff, you know, yeah. cyclically in life. And um, so I've been grappling with this sort of recently. Mm. And, um, mm. So I, reading about definitions of Nirvana and stuff, yes. it, one of them might be, um, it's a state of non cessation of greed, non hatred, and you know, non delusion.
0: Yes, it is. And so,
1: um, so then I thought, well, we'll desirelessness. It would be good to not crave so many things. The more I can cut that down, mm-hmm. the better. Yeah, you know, to and you know, in any way, you can get faster to that realization of non-self, mm. which unlocks everything. Would be really, you know, something to aim for. But you know, what can I practically do? Try minimize my desires. But I've been finding it a little bit hard in that. You know, getting small things and buying stuff can feel pleasurable, like retail yeah. therapy. Retail things, yes. and, you know, it's like giving yourself a little gift or yeah, some and sand to right. play with, some toy to fidget with, so, yeah. you know, even it's at true. this age and stuff. So, um yeah, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is um, for lay people and stuff mm, mm-hmm. is uh, there's, I guess some. Um, I'm going to oh, sort yeah. of say a little bit more, but yeah. you know, in for up to any time. Um, uh, so, like, there's different stages of enlightenment, I understand, like the four stages. Yes, and, um, right. They're all p- probably going to lead to yeah. a good rebirth in the end. Yes. Yeah, and even, and so. Um, or no rebirth in yeah, the end. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so uh, to get, so if we're someone does want to become enlightened. Yeah. Um, If they wanted to try and release, give up, you know, Mm. to give up more things and renounce stuff, would that be something you'd recommend? And what, you know, advice would you give towards someone who wanted to try to do that to encourage them? Or some people I've asked and they've said, well, you know, little things that make you happy, good, you know, you should treat yourself and that sort of thing. And, Everyone yeah. does it, and but I'm thinking, no, you know, I want to have higher <laughs> aspirations and stuff, and yeah. you know, so it's
0: so, um, a anyway, it's a good question stuff. actually. It's a good question because um, Ajahn Brahm often addresses that. He says that over and over again. You know, it wasn't in uh, what I was thinking for this talk, but that uh, you know, when we we see that desire, that craving, is not our best friend. <laughs> we hear about it in the Buddhist teaching, that it's not actually. Um, really a happiness for us. In fact, if you see that unsatisfactoriness is actually mentioned as suffering. Being parted from what we love, what we like, is suffering. Being associated with what we don't like is suffering. Not getting what we want is suffering. So you see immediately that desire, craving, is actually a form of suffering too. Most of us don't see it like that. We, we think of it as something, as you said, to look forward to. You know, we may little little treats and all that sort of thing. So we're not really seeing the nature of craving at a depth, really to see that it's not. As soon as we only desire, we only crave for something we don't have. Isn't that so? If we already have it, would there be a craving? wouldn't think, well, I have to have it. Oh, no, I've got it. <laughs> I've got it, sorry. But, you know, so this sense of craving, desiring, is immediately taking us to the fact, making us uh, the mind a little bit agitated. I don't have this. I want it. And, of course, the the idea, I want it, or I'll get it, is pleasurable. But then, with that idea comes the idea Oh, maybe I can't afford it. Oh, I can't get the model I want. You know, and all these other things. So the mind is is starting to get more and more restless. Craving is prompting us. We think this craving is us, don't we? But in actual fact, it's a it's a conditioned phenomena, a momentum in the mind, and it is the torturer. It is the slave driver. We have this nice word in Pali the Buddha used tanha dasa and that means slaves of craving. And we all are. We all are if we're not enlightened. We haven't seen that this... The craving, these desires we have are so conditioned, conditioned by, we think it's ours, our craving, it's me, I'm craving, I identify with this craving, but in actual fact it's a state of mind that has been conditioned by other people, by our peers, our friends and so on, saying, oh this is great, this new model is really good, the old model, wow, you know, and, uh, and also, you know, the uncomfortableness in our, if we have unpleasant feeling in the mind or the body, then this craving is prompted. It's a, a condition for it. Whenever we have an, um, we're have we suffering or in difficulty, you'll notice the mind immediately, even if it can't get away from it, it will try to get something pleasurable to oppose it. So this is seeing the nature of craving is really non-self. But what your question is, very good question, and many Buddhists, including Ajahn Brahm, he relates how, you know, he could see, and he had a practice of no desire. He used a mantra of no desire for in his practice uh, for some time when he was a monk, actually. I think he was a monk at that stage. And he realized, yeah, he'd give up something, but then he'd pick up something else. <laughs> he'd feel good about giving up something, and then he'd pick up something else. And he realized that, It was just like a substitution game, really. You know, you give up one thing and you take up another. And then he came to the the, the rather shocking um, uh, simile idea that how do you stop something, uh, stop from picking up something? You cut off the hand. (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Then the hand can't pick up. up. Both hands actually, you'd have to do both hands. So it can't pick up. And what is this hand or this arm that picks things up? It's this sense of self and this conditioned feeling, this conditioned emotion, craving that we identify with. If we were to cut off, if we were to undermine, which the Third Noble Truth is really about, abandoning this sense of I, me, I'm this craving, it has no how it cannot survive. It won't pick up anything ever again because we understand that, yeah, this is non self, this is not me, this craving that I identify with is not me. So this this understanding is very, very helpful, but also um, in in terms of the practicing the path, and I, I see where you're coming from, is to keep in mind that this path, the second factor of the Noble uh, noble Eightfold Path, is how we practice. And the first thing is to remember our spiritual practice is not about getting and gaining. We're not collect, collect, uh, collecting um, as Ajahn Brahm said uh, after, he said at the end of the, he had, gave a talk during a range retreat one time. He said, at the end of the range retreat, I can give a, a silver star for the f- people who've got first jhana and two, two stars for those who've got second jhana and so on. And then a gold, I can't remember what the gold was, a gold crown maybe, for those who have got the first stage of awakening. And then uh, two gold crowns if you've got second and Arahant four. And it just makes you laugh. But it's actually what we're, we're about. We're, this is our worldly mind that wants to collect and gain. Spiritual materialism, they call it, <laughs> uh, that we want to collect and gain. And so this mind state of gaining and getting, looking for our happiness outside, is one of the ways the Buddha recommends not practicing. Of course, it may come a renunciation looking for happiness, not from the from out there in our, in the senses, in the sense world of seeing sights, smells, tastes and touches, looking for happiness in here, which is practising um, working with the mind. And the second thing, very important, and I think you touched on it too, is to have um, a kind mind, a mind of non-ill will than when we practise. So we're not... Um, uh, we are not... Developing, we're not practicing or uh, repeating, getting angry with situations and with ourselves. This is one of the big areas, actually, with ourselves. And we have kindness towards ourselves and patience. <laughs> we don't expect miracles. And an acceptance. And non judgmentalness, these are very useful qualities. And the third quality that the Buddha mentions, and this is very important in practicing the path, is not hurting or harming ourselves. Avihinksa, Sankapa, not hurting or harming ourselves or others. And this can be, sometimes people can practice the Noble Eightfold Path with a lot of force, a lot of willpower. And this is not. This is probably going to be harming and hurting themselves, maybe others too. I know. I know of some people who, you know, are so attached to this is my practice that they really upset the family or other people, you know, uh, with that approach. So, not hurting or harming ourselves. So that's always the guideline for practicing the noble eightfold path. And to see, always to check up. Hmm, is this a positive or a wholesome uh, emotion that's been uh, generated by what I've done or said or thought. Is it wholesome or not? And never, never to, as much as possible, <laughs> not to follow the negative, even if you feel ever so justified, you know, they're absolutely wrong and I'm right, even then not to follow it. Um, so these are the guidelines uh, for not Uh, for practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, not trying to get and gain, trying to give things up. We have a lot to give up. All that negative stuff is is well worth giving up. And as I say too, I said yesterday, that the the person that uh, develops this path to the end, Ajahn Brahm often uses this um, uh, idea that they're disappearing they're not becoming bigger grander more impressive they're becoming they're fading away as it were they're very humble people very kind people very wise people they're not they're not going to be some grand uh, uh, grand entity you know being so this is this is the nature of the way we practice the path not to get and gain to let go of all the all the rubbish we have enough of it <laughs> from lifetimes so this is the way and so to to simplify our lives is very very good you know to because uh, all the things that we own we think we own them but they own us to a large degree don't they we have to clean especially these houses cars they don't clean themselves you can take them to the car wash of course and so on so they own us and even if we can get somebody to look after them all the time have servants and so on they're still on our mind you know about you know is it safe is it you know you don't want it damaged you don't you know there's always going to be on our mind whether it be a house a car a relationship whatever it is so, if we simplify, it's very good, and uh, to simplify our desires because it means we have more time, less busyness in our lives to practice dhamma, see dhamma, and really look for where the happiness is coming from—not from the things we can get and gain. I mean, they have some satisfaction, of course. Can't take them with us, though. <laughs> so that's the. So I hope that sort of answered your question. You know that these things. And not really, it's not really possible to cut off desire until, totally, until we've seen non-self. But having, just having the idea, "Ah, it's not my best friend. (laughs) And even though I think of this as retail therapy, you know, and I think many people do, everybody does actually, I think pretty much, um, you realise the shortcomings of it. You know, whenever we get something new, we hardly ever re- reflect on a Nietzsche. You know, if, if we really see Anicca uh, impermanence very deeply, you know, as some people did in the time of the Buddha, and as people still do today, if we saw that, that thing that we wanted actually just uh, getting older, breaking down, dissolving, and then, you know, if you see it at a very deep level, and the mind just lets go. And this is what what the, the whole purpose of seeing impermanence, seeing a dukkha and seeing a non-self is about, letting go, really. Once we know, this is not my business, all these thoughts, all this suffering, it's just, it's gone. It's gone. It's like... When we hear, we're on the train and we hear somebody on the phone, as you do, (laughs) and you hear them go on about terrible things in their lives, and you think, wow, you may have compassion for them, but you don't think, it's my suffering. You don't take it on necessarily personally. And it's the same for us. When non-self is seen, think, yeah, it's, this is suffering. That's all it is. This is suffering. It's not my suffering anymore. It's like that person on the train. And what happens when you see that you hear somebody on the train that's going through a very hard time? Compassion. You just feel for them. And you know, you know, you've had the same experiences, you've been there, done that too. And so you have compassion. Someone with a lot of wisdom has a lot of compassion. Someone with enormous wisdom, like the Buddha, enormous compassion, too, because he knows the situation we're in, and he's helping us out of us. But, he said, samsara is a bit like a house on fire, but you can't prevent people running back into the house to grab those those possessions, grab the the, the people that are dear to them. That's very natural. But that's what we're doing when we're reborn. We're running back into the burning house. And that's that's what a, a Buddha points to us. He's trying to help us. But we will, at least as Buddhists, We have the information and we will work. It's in our minds, so it affects the way we see the world and hopefully reduces our suffering, brings us more into tune with reality and gives meaning to uh, the difficulties we experience in life. One very famous psychologist, um, Viktor Frankl, yes, Viktor Frankl said that suffering without meaning equals despair. And that's what we see in this world. It's that's why Buddhism is such a wonderful gift to the world. The Buddha's teaching such a gift, because so many people just don't understand. Why is there so suffering in my mind? Say in my body. What's this about? Why me? You know. And of course, this is giving meaning. This is the actually the meaning of life what the Buddha is giving us. But as I mentioned at the beginning, it's just a matter of whether we apply it, whether we see it in our own experience, that's where we apply it and then reflect on it. That's where we can get the freedom. That's where we can see impermanence, dukkha, and non-self in our lives, in our experience. So I'd like to finish there because we're running late. We didn't actually even get, sorry about online for the questions. Um, but um, uh, I think we need to finish there because now it's, um, oh, yes. Oh, it's nearly five minutes, uh, five minutes to 11. That's right. This is five minutes to 10. I was oh, wow. <laughs> so thank you very much for that this morning. And those who would... I apologize for not getting to the end of the four noble truths. (laughs) So for those who'd like to, we can pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. And please, please come over for a shared meal if you'd like to, if you've got the time to come. Thank you.